just ask you to come before us and, and show us what you would have us to learn from this section. We ask you to bless this time, and we thank you that you give us your word and ask your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. First Kings chapter 22. Up to this point, we've had Ahab and Jehoshaphat meeting together. They're getting Ahab's trying to talk Jehoshaphat into going into battle. He brought hundreds of pro false prophets before Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat said, well, don't you have at least one prophet of God here? And so he brought him. He said, I hate this guy. He never says anything good about me. Uh, Micaiah says that you're going to go into battle. Israel will win, but Ahab, you're going to lose your life. And then they arrest a, uh, Micaiah and put him in prison. And uh, say they're going to deal with him when he comes back. And that's when he says, well, if you come back, then I've been a false prophet. I deserve to die anyway. And that's kind of where we left off our story. All right, so we're going to start at verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle, but, but put you on the robes. <laughs> and the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. But the king of Assyria communicated his, commanded his 32 captains that had rule over his chariots, saying, Fight neither with small nor great, save only the king of Israel. And it came to pass, when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, Surely this is the king of Israel. And they turned aside from the fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And it came to pass, when the captains of the char chariots perceived that this was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. So we want to stop there for just a moment. This, this has never made sense to me. Um, First, you have a prophet telling them, go, and Ahab, you're going to die when you go, and yet they still go. All right? Then we have the king of Israel, Ahab. He says this really wonderful idea. Jehoshaphat, you go in your kingly robes and your kingly armor, and I'm going to go, to go, in, go into battle disguised. Yeah, I don't understand Jehoshaphat's thinking on this, on this process. Uh, you know, to me it would be, okay, you're not bold enough to go into your kingly garments, but I'm supposed to go in my kingly garments. The prophet said, you're going to die and you're going to make me look like the only king out there in the battle would not make any sense to me. Well, no, he says, I'm going to go into, I will put on a disguise, put on your robes. And he said, I will just, and, and he disguised himself and went into the battle. So this whole thing doesn't make any sense to me. That he, you know, and you know, one of the things that can be very interesting is when we're not following God's will and his known instructions, because Micaiah said, don't go, basically. Now he said, you'll be victorious, but you're going to die. And how often do we disobey God and get into trouble? You know, get into trouble and do stupid things, make bad decisions, and then we will wonder why we're in so much trouble with God. God, how come you didn't keep me from doing this? And God says, how much more did you want me to say to you? Okay. And all of this is going to be very interesting. When we look at it again later on in Chronicles, we're going to find out or in the second Kings, they give us more on this, that the prophet is going to go back and say to Jehoshaphat, a different prophet, not Micaiah, why did you try to align yourself with evil? And unfortunately, we do these things often where we try to side up somebody who's not godly and then wonder why we got into a problem in our life. And in this one, we see that Ahab is being chased all over the battlefield. Uh, not Ahab. Uh, Jehoshaphat's being chased all over the battlefield by the 32 leaders. You know, he's got to feel pretty bad. He's gone into battle, and these leaders have been told, don't go after anybody but the king. So everywhere he goes, it doesn't matter whether he's running away from the battle or toward the battle, he has 32 leaders in chariots chasing him. And this is what really does happen to us often when we go into disobedience with God and align ourselves with the world. It seems like everything is out to get us. And you know what? They are. 
Satan wants to be, have us in a defeated position because if he can defeat us while we're in the wrong place, he not only defeats us, but he also destroys our testimony. Ahab and Jehoshaphat are coming in and they're being really dumb. Ahab has been told you're going to die, which is why he goes in disguise. He doesn't want, to, he doesn't want anybody to know he's king. And Jehoshaphat goes, well, it sounds good to me. You go ahead and go out in disguise and I'll go out in my kingly garments. Now it doesn't say he says that, but still you've got to think, you know, I'm just going out of my kingly garments. What, what, what are you wearing? Uh, what is that you're wearing, Ahab? Uh, why am I all dressed up and you're not dressed up? And you're the king. Uh, you know, Micaiah said that one of us, that, you, that, that uh, you were going to die, and he didn't specifically say Ahab, but he was talking to Ahab, go out to battle and you will not return. And we see this bad decision-making. And Jehoshaphat's a good king. He is a godly king. He's one of the good kings of, his, of uh, Judah. And he's making bad decisions by becoming friendly with Ahab and being talked into going into battle with Ahab. And we see this whole thing, and he's chasing around, and it says he finally cries out, and I don't know what, what he said that they got... You know, that they, they realized this isn't the king of Judah. Maybe it was his language that he spoke, the, the accent that he had. We don't know. He cried out. You know, uh, maybe he cried out to, the, to, to Yahweh. And all of a sudden, they're holding, that's not, that's not even the right God. That's not the God that Ahab fought. We don't know. It just says he cried out. All right. And they realized this is not the right king and stopped chasing him. Uh, and that's why I kind of think maybe he cried out to God. He cried out to God and, and, and they heard. And God heard. Because God is always ready to give us repentance when we finally cry out, no matter how bad we mess up. And this is the great thing about our walk with God. When we mess up, God is right there ready to forgive and ready to bless when we call out to him. And no other religion has that attitude that their God is ready to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be consequences. I don't know how, many, how injured Jehoshaphat got by being chased by 32 charioteers, probably all firing uh, arrows and darts and, and slings at him. I don't think he got out of this totally injury-free because he was the target of a lot of people chasing him. Verse 34, and I love this one. This one's kind of interesting. And a certain man drew an arrow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints and the harness, where, wherefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn your hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. And the battle increased that day, and the king was stayed in his chariot against the Syrians and died at evening, and the blood ran out of the wound in the midst of the chariot. And there went a proclamation throughout the host about the going down of the sun, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his own country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. All right. This statement, a certain man drew his bow and, uh, at a venture, which means with no, without intent. He was just frustrated. He just fired an arrow into the air. Randomly fired it in. He wasn't aiming it in at the king. And it hit Ahab perfectly in some joint in the armor in such a way that he was severely injured. Now, it could be up in the neck area. It could be in the shoulder. It could be in the side. We don't know. It's just in the joint of the armor. This arrow that was just randomly fired... <laughs> just randomly happened to find a slot in this armor to kill Ahab. Now, we as Christians know that nothing is ever random. God has full control. But this man firing it was not firing at the king. He was just, I think he was frustrated. We didn't get to kill the king. There's, a, there's nothing. He says, I'm just firing an arrow out there in the middle of the battle. And that arrow fired into the middle of the battle hits King Ahab. And not in a way that just bounces off his armor or dents his armor, but hits a vital joint in the armor. This is one of those statements that you just read at and you go, wow, God, you make things happen. God will make sure that what he desires to happen happens, even if it is random. 
you know, uh, God, I'm supposed to be over there. I'm over here. And God says, I want you over there. And he'll make something happen. Your car will have four flat tires or whatever. And, and you'll have to go where he told you to go. Uh, you know, you're going, uh, God, I'm, there's no way. I'm Jonah. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to go to Tarshish. And God provides him secondary transportation in the belly of a fish. Uh, you know, just a random fish just happens to be swimming by the boat and swallows him and takes him back to Nineveh. You know, just, just a random fish, no, no, nothing. Uh, Peter tells the, tells the temple, temple, yes, Jesus pays his taxes. Jesus goes, why should I pay taxes? It all belongs to me anyway. Go down to the, to the lake, put your hook in the, you know, I love it, hook, because they didn't fish with hooks very much back then. Put your hook in there, and I'm sure Simon's, you know, Peter's saying, like, you don't catch fish with a hook, Jesus. You know, that, that's, the, that's not what you do. And he throws the hook in, and out comes a fish with a just random fish out of the lake with a hook, has the coin in it for them to pay his taxes. You know, God does things, and you think about in your own life, how many times does it seem that random events have hit you, come along, to put you doing what it is or giving you what you needed. Uh, when I was walking by faith, it was, you know, it was amazing to watch how God put jobs in my path and put gifts in my path and all these things that just all seemed random. Our computers here in the, in the, in the uh, church were just given to us by a guy that came up to Chloride thinking that he was going to start a Bible study for one, using his one-year Bible, found out that we were meeting five times a week at that time and says, well, I don't know how else I can help do, but you've got this down pat. I'm going, I, if you want to come up and do this, I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to competition. He called us back the next week and says, I, I really feel like God's telling me to give you two computers. Gave us two brand new computers with the monitors and everything that we needed to work with. You know, just, just a random event. You know, he thought he was coming here for one thing, and it turned out to be not what he thought it was. And then the blessing that came from that event. These things happen all the time. God told Ahab, you're going to die. Ahab tried to do everything he could not to die and still died. You know, this is very interesting. And it says that, uh, therefore he said to the driver of the chariot, turn your hand and carry me out of the host for I am wounded. I have been hit. I'm, going, I'm, I'm very seriously wounded. And it says, the battle increased all day and the king was stayed or, or caused to stand up. They propped him up during the whole battle. All right? And all day long, he fought, and at evening time, he died. He bled out, basically. He, he, he bled to death from this wound. Because it says at the bottom of it, and the blood ran out of the wound into the midst of the chariot. He's got all kinds of blood coming out of him. And there was a proclamation throughout the host of the going down, every man to his city, every man to his own country. That was exactly what the prophet said would be told to the people, and at the end of the battle, they'd all go back to their own cities and their own countries. So God, when he says something, makes sure that it happens right down to the words that are spoken, and the events that happen. This is really an interesting thing. When God speaks to you, learn to be obedient. Because he's going to make you be obedient eventually. You can choose to be obedient and get all the blessings that come with that obedience. Or you can choose to be made to go, in, go to be obedient and get beat up in the process. I can't even imagine what Jonah looked like when he arrived at Nineveh. Three days in the belly of a fish. All right. There is stomach acids in the, in the, in the belly of the fish. Why did he not get blinded? Because God tells us he wrapped seaweed around Jonah's head so that he had oxygen and his face was protected. But the rest of him would have been bleached out by acid. And, he, you know, you got to figure what he looked like and what he, smell, yeah, what he smelled like when he shows up in Nineveh. His skin has been bleached. And he's saying, listen to God. The, the appearance alone probably had a big, big uh, scared, scared them, not just the message. Uh, Jacob 
wrestles with the angel rather than being paying attention and doing what he's told. It said the angel touched the hollow of his hip and put it out of socket and he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. Consequences for sin. And many people know what those consequences of sin, even if they were committed before you got saved, then your body is suffering, your emotions are suffering because of consequences for sin. Ahab's going to pay an ultimate. Jehoshaphat's not getting out too scot-free either. And he's going to be chastised by a prophet when he gets back home. So we have this. God says, I am not going to be thwarted. This is why it's sometimes hard for us to figure out, God, how much free will do I have? Not much. I have the free will to accept him or reject him. I have the free will to be obedient. And if I'm his, he's going to make me be obedient eventually or take me home. Many Christians go home much earlier than they should because of their disobedience to God. And here we see the death of the king. Just as it was told to him that you were going to die, you're going to go out and you're going to die. And remember, that was in the midst of all these other guys telling him, go out, you're going to be successful. And Micaiah says, you go, you're going to die. If he had just listened to Micaiah, he wouldn't have died. Because he said, go, you die. And the people will go back to their homes, every man to his own city, his own country. All right, verse 38. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria... And the dogs licked up his blood, and they washed his armor according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. And the rest of the acts of Ahab, and all that he did, and the ivory house which he made, and all the cities that he built, were they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his stead. Now remember the original... Uh, statement that he was given is you're going to die nobody's going to bury you all your relatives all your all your male relatives are not going to die he repented and turned to God in a period of three years he walked away from that but that repentance was enough that God says you're going to get to be buried that that act of repentance bought him time he did not listen to the prophet, so then God says, okay, you're, you're back to doing the wrong stuff. Now I'm going to judge you. And this is what's going on. And it says they washed the, the chariot out, and the blood flowed, and the dogs had a feast on his blood. Just as the prophet had said that they were going to walk, that the dogs would lick your blood of, your, of you, and... This is also going to be toward Jezebel, the same prophecy toward Jezebel that the dogs are going to eat her blood. And we're going to find her dying here uh, in the next, next book. Just, just as it was said, and the dogs consume her body, completely consume her body. They don't just eat the blood, they eat the whole body. Um, but, you know, it's amazing. When God says something, you can count on it. This is the beauty of looking at the Word of God. There is so much prophecy and fulfilled prophecy in the Bible that we can know that whatever is left to be prophetic is going to be true. And when God speaks to you, you need to listen, especially if you know that it's Him. Now, half the time we try to justify it. Well, I'm not really sure that God spoke to me. And we try not to do it, but at that time we usually know whether he's speaking to us or not. One of the things I look at, if I'm, I'm being told to do something that I really don't want to do, I seriously, and it's, and it's a good thing, I seriously consider that it's God speaking. Uh, right? Now if it's something I want to do, now I have to kind of double think, of, you know, think twice about it, because... A lot of times I have found the things I want to do are not necessarily what God wants, even if it's supposed to be good. Not always. There's times when I've done what is good and it's been exactly right, but usually if I don't want to do it and it's good, I really have a think that it's God really impressing on me to do it. And that's not easy sometimes to know. If it's something that scares you to do, you might seriously consider, and it's not bad, I'm not, I'm not saying bad, you know, it's something good and it scares you, 
you might want to seriously consider, God, are you telling me to do this? Because God is always challenging us to do things that are beyond us. And this is important. You know, on the, on the, the quote that I have on there, that if it's a big plan, that God gives us big plans. And if he gives us a big plan and we step out, he will be the one that provides the, the ability to do it. If all I ever do are the things that don't scare me and they're easy to do, they're not God plans. God tells us to do things that are big. All right, And this is something Billy Sunday, when he was an evangelist preaching, what he would do is he didn't even rent halls from places. He went in and built auditoriums and, and stadiums for, to go into that are still used in many cities. He just went in and they built them. He had a big call. God says, I need a big place. He knew that most places did not have a place big enough or designed the way he wanted. And he made sure that they weren't fire traps. They had exits and everything, which most of the buildings did not have in those days. And because he had a fire in one of his things and people died. And he says, never again. So he built his own auditoriums every place he went and then left them to the city or left them to somebody that would use them right. But that was a big investment. He wasn't making that kind of money to be able to afford to build all these buildings and yet God honored it. You know, so many times God will say, do something. We look and go, God, uh, I don't know about this. It's a, you know, that's a pretty big commitment. You know, George Mueller taking care of all those orphans, and he kept adding orphans. And God provided for him. He was not even out begging money. He wasn't getting out big businesses to give him money. He just took whatever God sent his way. And it amounted to a fortune every month to take care of these kids. And yet he sat back and said, God, you're in control. Now, we need to understand that when God gives us to do something to do, He's going to give us the finances to do it. He's going to provide the ability to do it. He's going to provide the people to do it. And sometimes it's scary. It's like, God, do we step out and do these things? You know, and if it's all in our strength, then it's probably not a God vision. God's visions are always big because he's the one that's going to get the glory. And if I can do something, if it's something I can do, I don't have to trust in God. You know, God doesn't get the glory. And even if I point to him, he's still not the one that's getting the glory because I did it. So we need to be able to say, God, I want to do something that takes you. That it's going to be your plan to do. It's God-sized plans to, to do it. Which means we step out into some scary areas sometimes and say, God, you know, if you're not here, we're going to go broke. You know, God, I really thought that's what you're doing. I'm going to step out in faith, and if you know, you're going to have to provide. And the good news is, God provides. He really does provide. And the king of Assyria says, then the rest of his acts are recorded in, you know, and uh, on on all that he did, the ivy house that he built, which was the one that was in Jezreel. Uh, he built a palace, and then he built a second palace, which they called the ivory house. And we don't know if it was made out of ivory or if it was made out of marble stones. It's kind of debated in the, in the history on how he, you know, how, whether it was covered in ivory or look, you know, painted ivory. Um, but he built a beautiful, beautiful palace. It was one of those palaces that are mentioned in history books. But we don't know enough about it. Um, and the cities that he built, he goes, aren't the, these are all written in the book of the Chronicles. It's one of those books we don't have. Right? All through these, we'll say they're, they're, all that they did was written in such and such book, and we don't have most of the books that, the, that are referred to. Um, <laughs> that's why I mention it when I read these things, that we don't have all these books that they mention. And then it says, Ahab slept with his father, and Ahaziah, his son, ruled in his stead. Now, originally, before he repented, Ahaziah would have been killed. But now he said, because he repented, God said, it'll happen in your son's day. And so we're going to see a little bit about his son. Verse 41. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. 
Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shehai. And he walked in all the ways of Asa his father and turned not aside from it, doing that which was good, right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered and burnt incense yet in the high places. And Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And the remnant of the Sodomites which remained in the days of his father Asa, he took out of the land. So we see here a, a little blurb about Jehoshaphat at the end of this, this book, and we're going to see more about him in the next book. Um, if you don't remember when we talked about this, originally when these were written up, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles were all one big book. All right, the Jews broke them up into two. We break them up into six. All right, um, so these were all just one big book. And so we see here Jehoshaphat. His reign pretty much overlapped Ahab's. He started reigning in the fourth year of Ahab, and he was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 25 years, so he's going to be 60 years old when he dies. Not, not bad. Yeah, well, it's kind of young, but not so young at those days. And it says his mother's name was Azubah, the, the daughter of Shilhai. Now, it's kind of interesting. They keep mentioning the mother, and the mothers are made queen. And the reason behind this is most of these guys have multiple wives. And to keep themselves out of trouble by picking a wife to be queen, they make their mom queen. And this is where we even to this day will hear the, the statement, the queen mother. All right. So they're referring back to the mother. Uh, and it kept these guys out of a lot of trouble. Which of my wives am I going to make queen? Uh, mom, you're queen. <laughs> Uh, made life a whole lot easier. So each time we see these kings coming in, especially in the Judah side, they tell us who their mom is because their mom is going to be queen. Uh, it was quite ingenious, quite ingenious to make mom queen to, to stay out of trouble and to, to make everybody happy. Uh, so we see this whole process going in there that they keep themselves from getting in trouble. So they, they, they just say mom's queen. Because you only had one mom. Even if dad had multiple, multiple wives, you only had one, one mom. So you just made your mom queen and it, it kept you out of a lot of, lot of trouble with the other wives. <laughs> you know, why did you make her queen? Why wasn't it me? Uh, you love her more. Yeah, but basically, yeah, you, you love her more than me. You, you like her better, you know. Why did she get it and not me? So all kinds of problems that were, were invested in this. So to get out of that problem, they just said the queen mother. Mom, you're queen. Get over here. <laughs> so we'll see mom's named. It's one of the few places where women are named in the Old Testament is when they're, when they're the mother of the current king. Uh, and so it says, He walked in all the ways of Asa his father and turned not aside from it and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So he is a good, godly king. He is turning people to God, following God. But it always seems to have this little nevertheless. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. And in this case, it says, for the people offered burnt incense in the high places. So now he either, this could lead us one of two directions. He either did not destroy the high places because the people were so much into the high places and he didn't want to cause a battle, or he destroyed them and the people kept building them back. It doesn't tell us. We know that politicians tend not to do anything that's going to cause problems with the people. And this goes to the kings. So he could very easily have said, well, God, you know, I'm, I'm doing everything I can in Jerusalem. I've got the people worshiping you around town. 
but those high places where everybody go, goes, I don't want to cause a civil war, so I'm not going to take them out. Or he kept taking them out and the people kept building them back up. I tend to think it was the first one. All right, because this statement is used over and over in the scriptures. For all the good kings seem to not get rid of the high places. And, you know, it's hard to get rid of something people want. When people want to do something wrong, no laws are going to keep them from doing it. All right? And so he can make all the laws that you're not to go up in the high places and worship and all these things, but the people that are going to do it are going to do it. All right? And this is why we hear all the time, you can't legislate morality. Well, you know what? You can't, but you still try to make people do what is right on the hope that they will follow what is right. This is why when we teach, we're going to teach the whole counsel of God, and we will say these things are sin. Now, whether people listen to it or not, that's between them and God. My job is just to say this is sin. Our job with our friends is to say this is sin, not to judge them, but just God says what you're doing is sin. I'm not judging you, but you've got to stand before God. And this is, you can do it carefully. They're still not going to hear it. No matter how careful you are, they're not going to want to hear that. And they're going to come back. You're judging me. You're, you're making me, you're, 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 you think less of me or, or the flip side of it. You think you're better than me. You know, we hear that a lot. You just think you're better than me. And especially when we first get saved and we start pulling back from all the activities we used to do with our friends. And they'll, they'll come at us all the time with, you just think you're better than me. You, know, you think you're, you know, you're, you're, you're so much more righteous and you, know, you think I'm, I'm this, that, and the other thing. Our kids will tell us that you know, when we change our ways. Our, our parents might tell us that. You, know, you just think we're better than, you're better than us. And this is the problem when you turn to God. When your life is turned from God and you choose to follow God and not follow the ways of the world, the world is going to attack you. It is just going to be the case. This is why many Christians end up shutting their mouth and not speaking, and that's the wrong way to go. All right, we need to speak up. We need to say something. There's times when I, at work, that I have to be very careful, but I have said things that probably could get me in trouble at some point. Because people will say, well, this is, this is okay, and go, no, it's not. God says it's not okay. And I'll drop it. I won't go much further than that. But we need to be able to speak up. We're living in an evil time and an evil generation, and we need to be able to tell people what you're doing is wrong. Now, our nation and our people don't want to hear that there's a godly standard of truth. Because they will say, well, they, they will answer, well, that's your truth. That's what you believe. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, but truth is truth. It doesn't matter who believes it. All right? If I don't believe in the truth, I'm still going to be affected by the truth. If I believe the truth, it doesn't matter whether you don't believe the truth. The example I go, if we go up there to Windy Point and step off the cliff saying, I don't believe in, in, uh, in gravity, I'm not going to stand around on the top, on, in air at the top of the cliff walking around on air. Gravity will say, well, I really don't care that you don't believe in me. You're falling down. <laughs> okay? Uh, you know, and this is what is, is the problem. Truth is always truth. Whether I want to believe it or not, it's still true. God says he is truth. He is the only way to life. And it doesn't matter whether somebody doesn't believe it or not. He is the only way to life. We're told that we're to assemble ourselves together and somebody goes, well, I don't believe in, I don't believe in churches. I don't believe in organized religion. I can, do, I can do this on my own. The problem with that is, yes, you can be a Christian and, and live it on your own, but you will never have power, you will never have growth that you will get by assembling with the church. And so all of these things are very true for us. Jehoshaphat does not clearing out the high places. And I believe there was only one king of all of Judah that, that went after the high places. 
and, and attacked the high place. And off the top of my head, I can't remember who he is. Uh, but I can remember there was one, at least one, that, that actually went up and said, okay, we're cleaning out the temple, we're getting the Levites to teach in the lands, and we're going to go up to those mountains, and we're going to destroy all of those idol altars. And Jehoshaphat, for all that he did right, was not able to totally change the hearts of the people. And this is the hard thing. This is where teaching really becomes important, to change hearts. And all we can do is present the facts and the truth and everything. If he'd wiped out the high places, he probably could have got their hearts a lot, lot easier. But they're going, well, you know, uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, I've been worshiping up there on that high spot for all my life, and, and mom and dad were worshiping up there, and grandpa and grandpa, grandma were worshiping, and great-grandpa, you can't get rid of that idol. I can't get rid of that idol because I've got to do what the family has always done. History can be a real problem. It's a real problem when we're changing our life. When we've turned to God and we're making changes in our life, the biggest thing we battle is what we've always done. And what is the family tradition? And even as we're changing, our family will come at us with, well, you're not going to really change, or, or I wonder how long this is going to last. This is why most drunks end up failing when they give up their drinking. They go on the wagon and their family's like, well, how long is it going to be this time before you fall off? And they never believe that you're going to stay off, off it. Even when you're a Christian, they're always sitting there, well, well, we'll believe it when we see it. So it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because they're not helping you. And the first time you get irritated because you're, you're, you're having trouble with being off the alcohol. They go, why don't you just get back to your drinking? You were more fun back then. You know, you were, you were more peaceful. You were more calm, whatever. And they almost push you back into it, the drugs, alcohol, whatever your problems are. And most of it is because they're looking for you to fail and they give you an opportunity, which is why we need the body of Christ to truly look at us and edify us. The hardest thing even for the body of Christ is to look at somebody and say, that person's a new creation. They have changed. And treat them that way. And this is why some places like Set Free Ministries and other places are so successful because they know the, the power of a new life and all of them have been there and know that they have been there and know that God has changed them and they help edify each other and they know what it means to fail and not let that person go too far the other direction. We need to be that way as Christians. When somebody fails, maybe it's not into alcohol or drugs, but the failures that people have, and we say, let's help you back up. Our failures in finance, our failures in pure, pure, pure relations, whatever it might be, we go to each other and say, God still loves you and he forgives you, and we're going to lift you up. This is important because it's so easy to fall. And, and once we fall, if there's nobody to pick us up, we'll wallow around in our misery. We'll go, I knew I just couldn't do it. I, I, I knew this whole thing wasn't really good. And I wallow around in, in self-pity. And that's when we need Christians to come up beside us and say, get, get up. Get up out of that. You know, I'm going to help you up. I'm going to help you get back on the path and get them back out there. Now, the truth will get us there, but when you're wallowing around, you're not picking your Bible up very often either. You're not going to church. You're not praying. You're just wallowing around in the, in the mud, saying, I knew I was worthless. I knew I couldn't do this. And that's when we need to have brothers and sisters come up and lift us up, take the hose and spray us off, <laughs> you know, uh, get us cleaned up, get us to Jesus so that he can forgive us because he's already forgiven us. This is the important thing we have to understand. When we fall, Jesus has already forgiven us. Even before we come back and ask for forgiveness. Now, does that, that doesn't mean we go out and sin just so he can forgive us. It doesn't mean that we go out and, and just presume that he's going to forgive us. He still wants us to repent. Repentance and confession are what gives us our fellowship back with him. 
He has not moved. It's us. When we're sinning and we have that broken fellowship, we don't want to be near him. He's still standing there saying, I'm waiting for you to come right here. I'm ready to give you that hug. The, the prodigal son's father gave his son a hug before he cleaned him up. While he was still dirty, he'd been feeding the, the pigs, he'd made his journey, and the father gave him a hug and then cleaned him up. That is how God works with us. He said he's not afraid of getting, getting some of our dirt and sin on him because it's not going to affect him. He knows it will wash right off of him. And he's right there ready to dry, dry, drag us into his arms if we just start making the right move. God, I have sinned. And he says, okay, good, that's all I wanted. I wanted you to confess. Now come back into fellowship. All the way back at the Garden of Eden. Adam, where are you? Uh, we're hiding. We, 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 uh, we, we don't want you to see us. We're naked. Who told you you were naked? Gave them every opportunity to confess. And they did not. Until right toward the very end. And then he provided their sacrifice. He killed two animals at least to give them their coats. And shed blood. Showing them that blood had to be shed. Now I've mentioned this, you know, when he shed those animals, or animal, I believe it was more than one, but it could have been one animal if it was a really big one. He showed them, just think about this. How many of the people listening to me get so attached to their animals that they would never do anything to see them hurt? This was the attitude they had. They were the, they were the king and queen, and, and they ruled over the animals and these were very close pets, and God had to kill one or two of their pets to clothe them. Their, their clothing came from something that they had developed a pet-like attitude toward. Now it's compounded. Their, their consequence was for sin was to be thrown out of the garden, to lose fellowship with God. Now they're wearing a pet to cover their sin. What an impact. Sin's consequences can be very intense. And we, we keep going in. And we would not sin if we knew the, all the consequences that were going to come. Usually we think we've counted the cost. You know, God, I'm just going to go out and have a good time with my friends. I'm going to get drunk and I won't remember the night but I'll, and I'll have a hangover. I can handle that. And then you end up doing something really stupid while you're drunk. And you're going, wow, I really didn't count on that consequence. You know, I thought I was just going to have a hangover. And I could handle a hangover. Sin always takes more from us than we anticipate. Jehoshaphat didn't get rid of the high places, and it has an impact on his people. And it says that he made peace with the king of Israel, which would have been Ahab, which is why he went into battle with him. Now, one thing about kings, if you remember, is we go forward with somebody's king until they die, and then they go back to the other king that overlapped them. All right, so we, we get to, Jehoshaph, uh, to Ahab's death, and then we go back to jo Jehoshaphat, who reigns during that same period. So right now, at this point in the, in the chapter, we've gone backwards in time. We've gone back before his going out to battle. He's made peace with Ahab, that's the king they're referring to. So when you're reading the book of Kings, keep this in mind that they will take one king until he dies, and if, he's, if the other king is still living, then they'll take the next king in that kingdom until they get to him dying, and then they'll go back and pick up the king who's, whose life was already covered. So it's very interesting to read sometimes because you have to make sure you know what time period you're in because they go all the way to the end of one guy's life and then go backwards. Genesis follows this same pattern. We in, we're introduced to Abraham. We, Abraham has his child, and we take Abraham's life to the very end. He dies, and then we start dealing with Isaac. When you look at the dates on this, Isaac and Abraham overlap. Just as any father and, and son do, they overlap a long ways. But if you're not aware of this, you go, okay, Abraham's dead, now we're talking about Isaac. 
Well, no, Isaac and, Isaac and him have a lot of overlap, but they just go backwards in time, pick up Isaac's life, run his life until it's all over, and then they go back and they start picking up Jacob's life, which he still is alive while Abraham's still alive. So we're going back a long ways because now we've got Jacob I, uh, and his dad and his granddad all alive, but they're not, it's like they never see each other. So if you're not aware of this, you don't realize there's a lot of overlap in those, in those characters. But we don't see it. Same thing in, act, uh, in Kings. We keep going back and forward in time. So try to keep track of who's king and what's going on when you're doing this. Uh, it can get very difficult sometimes reading the book of Kings for that reason. So we've gone backwards in time. We're, we're, we're looking at it uh, as to when he just started. So he's four, five, six years into Ahab's rule when all of this stuff is going on and he's getting control of his kingdom. And then in verse 36 it says, And the remnant of the Sodomites which remained in the, in the day of his father he took out of the land. Sodomites are homosexuals. So he clears out homosexuality out of Judah. And we, it doesn't say he killed them. Now the law of God said that they were supposed to die. He just took them out of the land, uh, which means he exiled them, moved them out of his country into other countries. Again, not quite following God's <laughs> rules, but at least he's purifying his, his land. All right, verse 47. There was then no king in Edom, a deputy was king, and Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold, but they were, went not, for the ships were broken at Enzigah-on-Gerber. And then said Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, unto Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. After he went into that terrible battle with Ahab, he learned his lesson about it being on the side of evil. So he would not. But it's kind of interesting, it says there's no king in Edom, but then he says he built some ships to go to Ophar for gold. Ophar is believed to be in India. The Israelites were never known for their naval skills. Matter of fact, they hated the waters, they hated the oceans, all of their poetry, even the Bible, talk about the sea with dread and waves coming up. He is trying to build his own navy. Jehoshaphat's trying to build his own navy. And it says, they went not for the ships were broken. <laughs> now, I am not sure what it means by broken. I don't know if he ran them aground. They hit, they hit a storm and didn't know how to, how to do it. They built very poor ships that couldn't handle the water and, and sunk. Uh, but his navy was not successful. And then then. Ahaziah said, you know, hey, well, I'll help you rebuild ships and I'll let my people go with you. And at this time, Jehoshaphat is saying, no, I kind of learned my lesson with your dad. Uh, you're, you're, I'm not taking your people with me on that. So his trip to get gold from India or Ophir died. Uh, and it doesn't really tell us how the ships broke. I'm thinking they, they, they were such bad sailors, they ran them aground, or they were such bad shipbuilders that as soon as they hit the, the oceans and a little bit of waves that they broke up and, and broke up. Either way, his ships were broken. <laughs> uh, now, Solomon even had a navy, but Solomon did it one step other. He hired other sailors to be his, command, you know, be his people, and he tried to teach his people to sail the vessels, but it never really took off even for Solomon. But Solomon at least tried to do it the right way. He went out to get people. Um, so these, this port is on the Indian Ocean side of all of, all of this stuff. So it's a long way, or, you know, he sailed them out and tried, tried to head toward the Indian Ocean and failed. Verse 50, And Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoiram his son reigned in his stead. So now we have the end of Jehoshaphat and Jehoiarim takes over. Verse 51, And Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria 
in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. All right? He, he had a real, real long reign, but God had said he was going to die. All right, so it's not a surprise. Um, he reigns for two years, and it says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. For he served Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked the anger of the, of, of the Lord God of Israel, according to all that his father had done. Very short reign, two years. Now, he started reigning in the 17th year of, of uh, Jeroboam, of Jehoshaphat, and is going to die long before Jehoshaphat dies. So again, here we bounce backwards in time again. Is he older? No. Uh, it doesn't say. It doesn't say how old he was. Um, but God, God judged him. It says that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father and his mother. You know, his mother is Jezebel, one of the most evil women in all of the Bible. So he's walking in two very bad people's way. Until he was there, Ahab was the worst king. And Jezebel was an awful queen who was willing to murder and kill and, and worship idols. He followed after them, and he followed in the way of Jeroboam. And if you remember what I said when, they, when it says they followed after the way of Jeroboam, not only was he worshiping Baal, that his father worshipped, and Astoroth, which his mother worshipped, he also worshipped the golden calf, which Jeroboam worshipped. This guy was worshipping just about every god except God. And God is saying, what is wrong with you? You know, your father was rebuked by me and he repented and God took him out because of his evil direction that he was walking in. And also the curse that was put on uh, Ahab that Ahab said, okay, God, I repent. And God put it on to his son. And his son just did evil. Uh, I can't imagine, you know, because the, all these worshiping things that he's doing, golden calf worship out there, he's probably following Moloch as well. He's probably worshiping just about every god that's out there. He's fo following Ashtora, which is a fertility god and goddess, which means he's participating in all these orgies and, and drunken orgies. He's following Baal, which has all kinds of human sacrifice involved with that. Uh, all these gods that he's following and he will not follow the God of Israel. Now, this is something, and this can be very sad when you see somebody who's purposely fighting against God, making bad decisions, getting into all the false religions that are out there, thinking that they're doing right, following and making bad decision after bad decision, and then what they do is they blame God. You know, God, why, how could you let these things happen to me? He goes, well, you're not one of my kids. You go, talk to your, go talk to your gods. You know, you're not one of mine. It's not me who's causing all this. You know, we as Christians at least can say to God, God, would you let it happen? He goes, well, you're my kid, but you're not listening to me. So now you get the consequences. But if you're not following after God, we have no place to go to God and say, God, it's your, all your fault that all this stuff is happening. But you know, we hear it all the time from the world. You know, well, God lets all these bad things happen to me. I'm not going to turn to it. Well, you're not his kid right now. You know, why would God keep things away from you when you're not following after him? And you know, we've all heard it. We might have even said it ourselves before we got saved. You know, look at all the bad things that God lets happen. If this is what God is like, I don't want to have anything to do with him. And he's just up there like, you're not mine. Why, why am I going to reach out and, and help you? The good news is he still has his hand on your life before you're saved. How many times did you not die when you, before you were saved when you should have died? You know, and God is sitting there saying, my hand's on you. I'm giving you opportunities. Now, we blame him for the, the bad that does happen when I almost die. I... I wrecked my vehicle, I wrecked the motorcycle, I, I jumped off the, off the building and broke my legs, you know, I, 
I got in the car while I was, you know, stoned or drunk and, and don't remember how I got to where I was going. And, and then I, the police came and told me that I ran into five cars on the way there and now I'm, now I'm under arrest. You know, all these different things that can happen to you. And God says, look at all the places I protected you. And we're looking at the consequences and saying, God, why? You know, well, you made a lot of bad decisions. And God says, there are consequences for those bad decisions. And sometimes those consequences last a long time. And a lifetime. Somebody goes out and drives drunk, wraps their car around a tree and breaks their, you know, breaks their back and several bones. And they're going to pay for that activity for the rest of their life. Even if they, could, even if they get saved later on, they're still going to have the pain and the suffering of that bad decision. Consequences can be life-changing consequences all because of our disobedience. Now, the good news is our obedience brings good consequences and good blessings, but it does not always and rarely negates the consequences for the evil that will come upon us. This is why our decisions need to be godly decisions so that we don't have to face those consequences. We don't have to have hard times because of bad decisions. Because we're going to make enough bad decisions in our lifetime without doing stupid decisions. <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, and we've all made stupid decisions in our lifetime. All of us. It doesn't matter who we are. We have made stupid decisions. Many of the times they're just bad decisions and there's consequences for bad decisions. But we need to be able to say, God, help me make good decisions. And this is where godly counsel can help sometimes. If you're not sure about something that you're thinking about doing, and you're not, if it's sin, you know you shouldn't be doing it, don't seek godly counsel because you're not going to like what you're going to hear. But if you're making a decision between good and better, get godly, godly counsel and see what, what God will share to you from, from other people. The most important thing, though, is when you get that counsel, plan on listening to them. I've had people that, give me, that, that I've given counsel to and I've watched them do exactly the opposite of what I told them and three other people told them on good counsel and they go out and do the wrong thing anyway. It's like, God, I got the counsel. Doesn't that count? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> we have to listen to the counsel that we get. Um, so... We're wrapping up 1 Kings here and, and where we're at with this. It's kind of interesting. We're going to go a little bit backwards as we go forward through here because we're going to have... Uh, because we're going to be looking at Ahaziah and, all, and, and, very, and many other things. We're going to see the end of Elijah and the beginning of Elisha uh, in this. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you very how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask you to just help us to listen to your voice. Help us to listen to you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10:9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. 
Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.